Hey, everybody, this is Butch Patrick. And oh, you're over there. Oh, you're here. Doesn't matter wherever you are, you're listening to the Walter Paisley Movie House. All right, I'm going to do a quick intro and then we can get on to chat. Hi, this is Sky Elabar with the Walter Paisley Movie House. <laughs> I've been practicing that, man. Awesome. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. Coming to you from Nilbog Manor Studios, I'm here with my engineer, Jason Harris, with music by Jonathan Harmon, and I'm your host, Dylan Rory. Today's podcast is brought to you by nothing, because I couldn't think of anything. Today's guest is a musician turned actor who began his acting career later than most. Hailing from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, he went on to study bass at the prestigious Berklee School of Music in Boston, Massachusetts. He played in various jazz bands touring with the United touring the United States until forming the funk rock power trio Seventh House in the early 90s, playing regular gigs at the legendary CBGB in New York City, eventually moving to New York, where the band signed with Atlantic Records subsidiary Blackbird. They also toured for opening ah fuck, I'll fix that in post. They also toured opening for acts like the Dave Matthews Band and other 90s rock staples. After 9-11, he and his family moved to L.A. where he formed the, the band in so far. Fuck! I'll get these rights, guy, I promise. You're going to edit this, band. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I won't. Where he formed the band in so far. In which he played... God damn With which he played the iconic troubadour and at the L.A. Warp Tour. By 2006, through the encouragement of his wife, he began auditioning through the LA casting group, eventually landing commercial roles. His unique look, distinct speaking voice, and tall stature made him stand out from other jobbing actors, and he was soon finding work in television series and feature films, including The New Girl, Lady Dynamite, Candy Corn, Son of Zorn, and The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien. He has worked with some of the best known names in cult and mainstream cinema, including Elijah Wood, Zoe Deschanel, Jared Hess, Jared Hess, I'll get it right, Aubrey Plaza, Amy Ryan, Jermaine Clement, Maria Bamford, Fred Melaman, Danny McBride, Lake Bell, Juliet Harris, Zoe Saldana, Michael St. Michaels, Keith David, Courtney Gaines, PJ Souls, Sam Rockwell, Will Forte, Tony Todd, and some guy named Dylan Rory. His best-known role to our listeners, though, was in the instant cult classic 2016, The Greasy Strangler, in which he played the constantly belittled and emotionally abused Big Braden. Emotionally abused Big Braden. I need to work on my diction exercises, Sky. You need to work on the, uh, the script, man. Just change it. <laughs> <laughs> Please welcome a guy who loves to debate which is better, Detroit-style Detroit pizza or New York-style pizza, and bass player for the polka band, the Alpine Village People, our friend, Sky Elabar. I could not have fucked that up more. You're welcome. Oi, 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 oi. Jason, our engineer, said it was like jazz. So, yep. there we go. You should keep it. <laughs> How you doing, man? Pretty good, man. Is good. this which which is this in the series of the podcast? Is this number what? Let's see. You, uh, I don't know. I have to do math. Um, you are 
of our big interviews number let's see what's your favorite number i don't know yeah what's your favorite number we'll go with that seven this is ish, this is number seven and you know what i think that's actually right so <laughs> what's well, my favorite wine chateau oh, neuf de pop there we go we were going to get to wine definitely I know okay. that. Whether we like it or not, I know you're going to turn this around to wine. So for our listeners, uh, let you know now <laughs> that Sky and I have a history. We know each other. I've known each other for a couple of years now. And in fact, um, I try to avoid talking to my talking about myself a lot on this, but um, because it's it kind of an insight into the kind of person you are, I wanted to talk a little bit first about how we met. So from my side of the story, uh, I uh, lost my wife in 2019 to cancer, and my son and I were really struggling, and uh, we had a friend make us, uh, she knitted us the shorts that you guys wear in the disco tours, and I tagged you in a picture of us cosplaying as you and Michael St. Michael's. And we began talking to each other. And next thing I know, uh, my son and I are in Detroit, uh, peeing on a film that you worked on, a Ben Evans film. Uh, we became good friends then and have remained such as since. We got to hang out at Days of the Dead here in Indy together. And you are one of the most enthusiastic people I've ever met. If you Thanks, man. share a passion with a friend or a you have a friend who has something that they're proud of and are working on, you will be a bullhorn for that person. Absolutely. Um, it, you're just a, a really wonderful open guy. Is that a correct read? I feel like you, you pretty much connect with well, thanks, anybody. man. I hope to be. Yeah. Yep. And um, you remember picking us up, picking my wife and I up at the oh, yeah. airport and like the crack of dawn in a mini cooper squeezing us all into a minute is that, that a mini cooper fun. yeah i've since gotten rid of it <laughs> man i knew this guy's really into it man he wants to work on this film <laughs> that was a lot of fun and we'll we'll definitely get to that because i know the story's continuing with that one but um, let's back up a little bit and talk. Okay. We talked about this a little bit at Days of the Dead, but didn't have time to really get deep into it. But I'd like to go back to where you started. So you grew up in Pittsburgh, just out in a suburb outside of Pittsburgh. No, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the oh, city. Oh, okay. Okay. In, in the city, right down the street from Tom Savini. Wow. He lived Did like you... three, three, two blocks from me. No shit. Did you like? Yeah, and he still lives there. Is he somebody you would interact with as a kid? No, no, he was a legend. Right. So you you wouldn't. With <laughs> Jason wants to know if you saw him at the pool. <laughs> yeah, I saw him at the pool down by the uh, by the Bloomfield Bridge. There was a pool there. I saw him there. It's a, it's a public pool we used to go to. But anyway, yeah. he's kind of uh, it's, that's that part of his legend actually. Oh, go ahead. That, Sorry. I was just saying that's part of that, his legend. Yeah. I lived in that Italian neighborhood okay. and we weren't Italian, but he was. Yeah. You know, your, um, your real surname, do you mind if I say it? No, go ahead. Wabner. Yeah. Is that yeah. What is that's the my, origin of that? It's, uh, 
German. German. Okay. It's it. My wife and I talk about this all the time, and I try to explain to her my name. My my real surname is not really Blobner. It's blah blah. Blah blah. Blah blah. Blah blah. Yeah, Got and it. when they came over from from uh, from Germany, mm-hmm. like God, who knows when? Yeah. Through Ellis Island, they, they gave him the it. name Blobner. Yeah. <laughs> I think they but wrote down whatever it blah, sounded blah. like. Blah blah. Okay. Yeah, I think on the island they would just write down whatever it sounded like. You said so. And people would ask me what. Uh, what is Blau in Germany? I'm like, it's blue. So just call me Blue Boy. Blue Boy. I like it. Blau, Blau Boy. And Elabar then, how did you come up with that? That was easy. We used to get packages to our house and nobody ever spelled our name correctly. We'd get Bloopner and Blabner and, and Blotner. And one time it came Elobar, all the letters were were fidgeted around and one was left out. And I'm like, that is an amazing stage name, Elobar. That's fantastic. I love that. So you're growing up in Pittsburgh. You're a kid. You're seeing Tom Savini at the pool. What was your youth like there? Uh, Playing guitar, playing upright bass. Uh, hanging out with my friends in bands. What trying, age did you trying, start? What age did you start picking up a guitar? Probably eight or nine. Wow! But we weren't living in Pittsburgh at that time. Okay. We were living in a place called New Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is about forty-five minutes north of Pittsburgh. Okay. And uh, I got the bug there to play guitar because my dad had a little a little harmony acoustic and he showed me all kinds of little ditties and Mm -hmm. I I really got into it. And then my brother got jealous and he smashed the guitar. (laughs) He literally smashed the guitar. And I went up to my dad, we moved to Pittsburgh and I said, can I get a guitar? And he said, only if you take lessons. Yeah. So so your dad was teaching you stuff with, did he play in bands? Was he just a musical guy? He was the violinist. Oh, he was the violinist. And he he played piano and violin. Hi, cutie. Sky's dog has just joined us. How you doing, Coco? <laughs> oh my God! So, what about was your mom also a musician? Yeah, she played piano. Oh, cool. Not pro- not professionally now. Mm-hmm. My dad played in the Oakmont Symphony Orchestra, which was a local symphony. Yeah, where they they get together and just work on the masters of music, you know, mm-hmm. the symphonies, Beethoven, Brahms. Sure. You know, did you attend those concerts and things as a kid? I never did, man. I was yeah. never got around to it, but, but got a little lessons from my dad on violin. Cool. And realized this is, this is ridiculously hard. It's really my hands hard. are too big. Yeah. I tried it too. It's difficult at best <laughs> so you move into guitar and bass you're a teen you said you played in some bands as a teenager we had a band called mother yes in, in high school and we did like just old covers of stuff like alice of stuff? cooper 
Alice nice. Cooper, The Who, you know, mm -hmm. and played it at the high school band contest and never won anything because because our singer was like nine feet tall and ugly as sin. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Didn't have that rock star appeal. No, uh, no, he did. He was like really skinny too. And he had a gigantic nose and he looked like a monster. And he scared people. So we never won any contests, man. <laughs> well, I hope he's not listening to this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you ended up at Berkeley. How yeah, did that I ended happen? up at Berkeley. My dad was trying to corral me to go to different schools, you know, and and I looked around and looked around, and I knew I didn't want to like pursue classical music. I just right. it just didn't seem like my my thing to get in a suit and tie every day and go. So I um, I looked around and saw Berkeley and mm -hmm. their alumni. I looked at the people that came out of there and I was all, I was into Chick Corea, Herbie right. Hancock. Uh, all these people came out of Berkeley and I thought, oh my God, I got to go there. Yeah. And uh, when I went there, my I got, I got in, I auditioned and got in and uh, my sister, it was a, there was a snowstorm to get up to Boston. So the, the planes were down. My sister took me up there on the train, on the Amtrak train. Wow. And we and she like got me into the thing. We took the I took all the the, uh, you know, the entrance stuff. You mm -hmm. go and get your package and go and get acclimated to everything. And it was great. What she year took was off. that? 1984, okay. 1985. Okay. How many brothers and sisters do you have? Three other brothers and a sister. Where do you fall in that age range? I'm in the somewhere in the middle there. Right on. Okay. <laughs> and my sister, my sister passed, and oh, my brother under her passed. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. I was. That was a, a real weird thing. Yeah, bummer. Yeah, I lost my older sister to a car accident. It's a it sucks. There's no other way to describe it. So I'm sort of very sorry to hear that. Man. So yeah, let's just turn this into a really bummer podcast. <laughs> yeah. We can always every time it starts to get bummer, we just bring our puppy in. Bring here. the dog in, man. There That's we go. There's the puppy. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, puppy. you're at Berkeley. I get the feeling that you've always been kind of an adventurous soul. So leaving your hometown, was that difficult? Uh, no, because there really wasn't much going on in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. It was it's it's really a uh, a small town. Yeah. Kind of a small town. Right. So, so you get was, to Oh, go ahead. It was great to go to Boston because Boston was like, you could, it's all musicians. Yeah. It's, it's, Berkeley is just an incredible school. It's so legendary. And there's, uh, like you said, all the alumni from there, is, there's not many people who come out of there and don't end up working in music in some way. Yeah. Who did you study under there? 
Um, God. Herb Pomeroy. He's a famous yeah. like, composition guy. Um, I went to some, some clinics and stuff with Gary Burton, who was a, uh, a well-known vibraphonist, xylophonist, mm -hmm. vibraphone, okay. jazz guy, really well-known. And um, there was the guy from the weather report that you, Oh, that was, that's when I went over to new England conservatory. Okay. I studied with Miroslav Vitas yeah. for, for okay. quite a while okay. and went out to his house and, and, hung out in his living room and he'd show me like all these these jazz and classical bowing techniques he was a, he's a master man yeah he told me stories and we play and he he'd make make suggestions and mm -hmm. really intuitive musician and um he said uh when he was 18 he was in czechoslovakia and he gets a the phone rings and he picks it up and it's Miles Davis on the other end of the phone. It says, can you come to Chicago like now? It was his first gig out of Czechoslovakia playing with Miles Davis in Chicago. So that's the kind of guy. He was an amazing musician, man. Yeah. Uh, do wow. you know Weather Report at all? Yeah. Yes. Well, one of the basses that he played. I was really into mu instruments that musicians play too. You'd mm -hmm. look at their instruments and say, wow, that's a, that thing sounds great. I want to get to one of those one, one day. He had a double neck bass and guitar. It was a guitar and a bass all in one. Yeah. When I've I went out to before. play with him, when I went out, when I went out to play with him, that thing was sitting in the corner. And I looked at that thing and I'm like, is that what you played on the weather report album? He said, yeah, you want to buy it? <laughs> Did you? <laughs> it was, I'm like, how much? And he was like, $2,000. Yeah. I'm like, I can barely afford these lessons, dude. I was going to say, did he realize he was talking to a music student? <laughs> <laughs> so you you're studying with these amazing people. You're learning music. You're growing as a musician, which is kind of the point of going to higher education is to grow whatever passion you have. Yeah. What was for you, what was your biggest takeaway coming out of that? Don't go to music school. Yeah. Because Berkeley... Berkeley and music schools and schools in general that involve art or music usually suck the suck the life out of you and the, yeah. the the individuality out of you and more than not yeah so that what, was the takeaway what for you with that in mind how did you overcome that yourself Just, I guess, just being out playing live and and doing doing it rather than sitting in a practice room, doing it. Yeah. Getting out and realizing this is what it is, you know. Were you gigging while you were in school too? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that helped too. Yeah. Gigging it while in school helped. Playing weddings, playing mm -hmm. jazz gigs, playing 
everything. We had a gig down in uh, in the south end of Boston uh, every like Wednesday or every Thursday. It was a lunch gig where they had a piano set up in the middle of it, like the like a kind of a lunch room, mm-hmm. and we played jazz in the middle of the lunch room, and people would tip. Oh, cool. Yeah, and we didn't get paid; we got tips. Right. We made great money, man. People loved it, and at the end, we they fed us. Oh, even better! Those are the best gigs when you're a student. <laughs> so cool. that was great. Like taking what you you kind of look, you kind of read, and what you kind of learn in yeah. school, and applying it. So yeah, in your own way, doing it in front of an audience while you're learning at school. What did it teach you that school wasn't? School, school wasn't, you know, something that would happen, you know, live, impromptu, that would give you the energy to improvise and yeah. and do something creative on the spot. You never did that in school. It right. was all a, a uh, just, you know. I imagine the lesson. audience, that audience too, where an audience at school is really going to be watching you. It's going to be a professor or other lecturers watching That's true. you and really paying attention and being very critical. Whereas in an environment like a restaurant, you're trying to get their attention, but they're busy having conversations and having lunch. And it, I know for me as a performer, it changes completely when you're in front of that kind of an audience compared to a captured audience who's actually there specifically. To that's, see. that's very true. That's very true. Playing live in front of an audience is way better than playing in a, uh, you know, in a, a, a little... Yeah, in a lab or a clinic or yeah. whatever. It's right. kind of sterile. Yeah. So you get out of school. What's your first move? Go, uh, start start writing music. Writing. I started writing like more pop sort of music. Mm-hmm. 80s, early 90s pop sort of stuff and realized maybe this isn't the way I want to go mm-hmm. and then started seventh house right on and just got got whatever gig we could get played 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 and did another record did another record grew the band grew the audience and went from there and it came to the point where we had such a big audience in Pittsburgh, in Pennsylvania, in mm-hmm. Ohio, and around that record companies were taking interest. So you guys ended up doing six albums. Is yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about Seventh House. What were you guys? We were like a power funk pop, a little bit of pop, but power funk trio. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of broke the rules. We were kind of like a, uh, like a Primus yeah, or, or a Motorhead, but a, a bit more melodic and song oriented and structured than they are. Mm-hmm. Not that they're not structured, but 
there it's, it's not as loosely structured right and more melodic and um but at times brought in other if you listen to those records brought in other instruments like accordion mm -hmm. uh different little things pian like a fender Rhodes piano uh but mainly we were a power funk trio mm -hmm. grungy funk it's fun music i really enjoy it i found a few things um for our listeners there's another seventh house band out of england they're a very different group um there, so. wait there's just another band called seventh house yeah out of england um they started in 2000 uh i'll have to find it sky i'll find it um, no you're talking about in so far maybe there's another there's group that, called in so was... far from england they did one record yeah and and we predated them okay okay cool all right so yeah if you want to check out we did a, an ep and in so far ep okay yeah and that was when you were in la right 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 before la new york okay all right and then la i found a couple articles um from pittsburgh where you were interviewed and talking about those and the timeline between the two is a little all over yeah, the place so it's kind funny. of tough to put together yeah um so you you've got this band you start gigging um we talked a little bit of this um day of the dead you guys played cbgb on, on the regular yeah we played cbgb louise which you informed me, and I didn't know that Louise was Hilly's daughter. Maybe I'm not a hundred percent on that. I'd have to. I I didn't follow up on the research on that like I should have. But I I know his daughter started out booking for him in the '70s. I don't know if she continued working for him later on. Okay, but Louise booked us, and it was it was a real trip getting a booking from Louise because she you'd call there at a certain time. She'd tell you to call at a certain time. Mm -hmm. Then she'd say, call back in two weeks and hang up on you. And this <laughs> was, this went on forever and ever and ever. Finally, you got a booking and you got you, you you got up there and you got a little bit of a crowd. And she realized, oh, these guys are these guys have a little bit of a crowd here. I'll book them again. So we right. started booking more and more. And then finally, I called her and said, uh, can we play every Monday night? She said, sure. Cool. <laughs> and and uh, it's, it's, it's legendary playing at a place like that. Cause the, the when you go in that, that club, when you went in that club, the, the, the scent that hits your nose was the, I mean, <laughs> for, I mean, only a dog could <laughs> translate all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, it definitely was Hilly's dog. Yeah. Pee and poo. <laughs> kind of legendarily, that dog would just have run of the bar and piss and shit everywhere. <laughs> Man, it, it just stunk in there. And yeah. then, but the sound system, everybody always commented on how great the sound system was. And it was. Yeah. What was it like playing there? I mean, knowing the history of that place, and I'm sure you were aware of the history of that place when you were getting it. That's why you pursued it so fast. When you're in there, I mean, you just think about the legends that cross that stage, I'm sure. And it, I get 
flack for being cheesy sometimes, but fuck it, I'm cheesy. It had to feel magical. There was definitely the energy. When you went in there, you just knew, God, we've got to be on tonight because we have people coming out and yeah. people and the that whole intent yeah. was was really intense. You you wanted to be like the best you've ever played mm -hmm. and hope that the monitors were working, that nothing ever happened, didn't happen, or you broke a guitar string mm -hmm. or your amp went out. Right. So there was that were, energy. You guys were still in Pittsburgh. So you were yeah. traveling to New York, doing the gig, then traveling back to Pittsburgh that same time. Yep. And we were. in the meantime, were you doing day jobs too? Or was this? Were you we, we, weren't, we weren't we weren't really doing day jobs. We had, we were playing shows around the area in mm -hmm. Pittsburgh and making money. Yeah. Uh, we drive up. It, ta it takes about six hours to drive from Pittsburgh to, to uh, New York city, mm -hmm. park the van, go get something to eat and then go over and sound check. It's your given time. Right. Louise, Louise would say, your sound check is 5.30, don't be late. You know, that kind of thing. So yeah. they were pretty intense about that, too. So we get it over there, get a sound check, and then hang out. Yeah. Hang out around the village, uh -huh. walk around, wait, maybe even wait to see, like, listen to the other bands. There were always, always great bands in front and behind us yeah just amazing do you remember any of them offhand god i'm sure it was i mean i can't imagine how tired you were first off <laughs> just you know you're there and like you say a blur it's just one thing after another going Man, I'd have to look back on it because we kept the little press things oh, where cool. they they put the village voice had put in CBGB's Monday night, seventh house. Nice. Uh, and then there'd be other bands. I gotta look at some of those. How did that feel seeing that like in the village voice, a famous underground rag? How did that feel to you? Insanely great. Yeah. Insanely great, man. And it's like but there was still a mountain to climb. Sure. Sure. I imagine, did you guys get a lot of um, radio play around the Pittsburgh area? That's the thing about Pittsburgh. You know, they never really, like, they were, they kind of had their ed heads up there, you know what? Right. Uh, and they never really supported local bands like they should have. What you was, could have had a song that that was perfect for the format, and you mm -hmm. it, it was virtually impossible to get that guy, that program director, to put you in. But there was one dude, um, Booker. He was he was on a that's his that's his name, mm -hmm. and he's he's gone like famous. He's he went to K Rock, yeah, New York. He yeah. went to K-Rock LA. 
he had his own little show on entertainment tonight yes. and he came out of Pittsburgh on one of the stations and we had a song called dirty laundry and he interviewed us and, and put the song up and got masses of flack from his program director for doing that. Really? But that, that like two, two minutes and a half of us being on that radio station, you can't imagine what that did for us right in Pittsburgh. Sure. What did it feel like? I mean, hearing yourself on the radio, it's you see in movies with where the bands hears themselves for the first time on the radio and that kind of reaction they have. How was that for you guys? Were you in studio at the time? Okay. Say that that? were you in studio when he played it? We were at a pizza shop getting pizza Uh and the guy knew us the guy who owned the pizza shop said hey that's you guys you know and he he, he'd throw it on every now and then cool and but he broke the rules you could never really get that in uh in pittsburgh on like the mainstream rock stations they wouldn't do it what was the graffiti rock challenge it was an annual rock challenge that happened Tony DiNardo, who owned the club, did this for the local scene. And I got to say, Tony did more for the local music scene than anybody in the history of Pittsburgh. Awesome. With graffiti. He did. He got so many bands going and he get, got so many people breaks to play on the stage. Open for we opened for God, so many, so many great bands coming through town. Mm-hmm. You know, Fishbone. Uh, Dave Dave Matthews was a bigger venue, but uh, mm-hmm. Morphine. Um, wow. All these bands came through town, and he'd give us a shot at opening and being in front of an audience. And that's really a great thing when you're when you're uh, you know starting a band and trying to build a, a, a following. Mm-hmm. To get thrown in front of a big crowd and improve yeah. yourself. Very cool. But Tony DiNardo was the guy, and I was really, uh, you know, upset to see that the club closed because graffiti, man. Everybody that's... played at graffiti. Nirvana all the way. I mean, everyone. Cool. Every, every moderately sized city seems to have that guy. The, the person who's out there and really pushing the local scene, getting the clubs to book the local acts over the, to headline for the bigger bands and things like yeah. that. Very cool to have that around. Yeah. That's a so, cool thing. So I have to throw throw the, a little shout out to Tony. I haven't uh, talked to him in years, but you know, yeah, he's nice. a good dude. Cool. So you end up in New York. Um, when was that? Around 98, I think? Yeah, okay. Nine, 1998. Okay. Went to New York. Okay, yeah. We were having more fun with ourselves than we were for you guys. I admit it. I just like talking to him. He's a great guy to know. I hope you're enjoying listening to this one. We're going to get into his movie and acting career and part two. Uh I just like Sky. How can you not? I hope you guys are getting back out in the world. Mask mandates are going away because we've just decided to live in denial. Works for me. 
uh, when you're out there, tip well. Things are getting hairy and your servers are out there serving you. And at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we don't piss on hospitality. All right, guys. Talk to you next time.